World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we are going to talk about tanks. On January the 25th, after months of humming and hawing, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz finally announced that he was prepared to send Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine and to allow other countries with leopards to send them to Ukraine as well. As the protesters were saying outside of the German parliament, the leopards are free. What led to this turnaround? What does it mean for the war in Ukraine, for German diplomacy, for transatlantic relations? I have an all-star cast, a very large one, in fact, five people. We're all going to help us try and make sense of this uh, this topic today. Two of them, Jana Pulierin, who's the head of our Berlin office, and Gustav Krasse, are co-authors of ECFR's Leopard Plan, which was um, published many months ago now when these debates started uh, going forwards and people were saying within Germany that they couldn't go into this alone. So it was a way of trying to Europeanize it, something which we might now see happen. And the other two guests are going to bring fascinating perspectives as well. From Paris, we have, or maybe Brussels, we have Camille Grand, who is a distinguished fellow at ECFR, who is uh, working on, on defense issues. And from Washington, we have Jeremy Shapiro, back to the podcast, who's our research director. Why don't we go straight into it? And maybe, Jana, seeing as you and and Gustav uh, were the authors of this Leopard Plan, you can tell us maybe a more conceptual thing at the very beginning of this, which is what is a a tank and why are people so so obsessed with tanks at the moment? Because Western allies have been sending lots of things to Ukraine, a lot of things that they seem to look an awful lot like tanks, armored personnel carriers, Marder, infantry fighting vehicles, all sorts of other bits of equipment. But for some reason, people seem very excited about this latest decision. Well, so basically, a tank is a a huge gun that is mobile because it's on a track chassis and it can withstand a lot of beating because it has heavy armor around it and a good radio set inside. So you can coordinate this kind of massive gun that turns up on the battlefield and shoots other stuff to shreds. Not exclusively other tanks, but whatever appears in the battlefield. So why are tanks so important? So basically, the the problem Ukraine going through this war was that they had a lot of equipment that, of course, was of Soviet heritage. And ammunition for that, uh, spare parts for that, were sometimes limited. Ukraine had a six-week supply of ammunition for its army, and they were basically depleted by mid-April. There were, of course allies on the eastern flank who have uh, and are still using and some even producing ammunition and spare parts for this kind of stuff. But of course, after 11 months, the rate of usage of them, of course, exceeds all expectations in Europe and elsewhere. So Ukraine went to all the markets on the world trying to buy in Africa, in, in Asia, wherever you can get and find ammunition. But that was not a very sustainable supply route. So Basically, in all kinds of weapon systems, the discussion starts, shouldn't the West supply uh, some systems? Because there, at least, is predictable. We, we know the turnout of ammunition of, in our own factories. We can replace these vehicles because we produce them, etc. And that debate started with artillery systems and went on to air defense, and now we are at tanks. The problem with that was that from the beginning of the war, kind of tanks were set aside as the kind of mystery thing that allowed Ukraine to 
expel the Russians from Crimea in three weeks. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but there was a lot of myth building around these and they became kind of highly symbolic and symbolically charged for for sort of what do you stand for in the war? Ukraine only surviving and, and, and a Minsk three agreement or do you want to have Russia's territorial gain reversed? And I think over the winter, basically, a lot of these divergent discussions merged because Putin's resistance to, to, to really talk to anything and if we come to the bookshelf, I'll, I'll recommend some reading on that. Basically convince most of the allies that actually these two goals are the same. There will not be any, any Putin is playing for victory. There won't be any ceasefire, whatever. Either Ukraine wins or the Russians. And if you want this to be Ukraine, then you can't reserve yourself um, to sort of take out certain vacuum systems you, you think are kind of spooky. And that's basically, in a nutshell, what the, the debate revolved around with a lot of iterations. Thanks a lot, Gustav. So I'm really keen to to hear what the debate in Washington's been and, and for Kemi to give us a sense of what's happening in NATO. But this is, you know, about Ukraine, but it's mainly been a German psychodrama for, for the last few months. Jana, you've been in the heart of this psychodrama, one of the people kind of pushing on the government to, to free the leopards. Can you tell us a bit about what's happened, why Charlotte's ended up changing his mind, why it was such a kind of painful and uh, and drawn out process so for several months now the question about the leopards has been in a nutshell a question about germany's commitment to helping ukraine germany is by now uh, when you look at the famous kiel support tracker for ukraine you can google it uh, germany is by now i think number two when it comes to military aid um, in europe but still it was very uh, the government was very hesitant to yeah, to, to even think about the, the, the main battle tanks and especially the chancery. And this emerged into a rift inside the coalition. So the Greens and the Liberals were very much in favor of freeing the Leopards. Uh, they wanted to go forward. Um, so we saw some intra-coalition fights. And basically, it also became a huge issue between Germany and Poland or Germany and Central and Eastern Europe. And it ended just shortly be before the, the, the Rammstein meeting in basically Poland, uh, announcing that they want to uh, ask for export permission. The German government saying they never received an official request um, and they will only decide once uh, the Poles basically uh, hand that official request in. And then there were all sorts of rumors in Poland that the Germans don't take it, uh, kind of aren't honest. And so it, it became a really toxic, loaded topic where Scholz, yeah, did not really explain itself why he didn't want to do it. Or, I mean, his advisors gave a ton of reasons and they always changed. So for an observer, this was actually pretty frustrating, I have to say. Can I give a two-finger to that? Germany has and always have been a very restrictive arms export policy. And you can pass iterations of this podcast. We discussed drifts in Europe that, that emerged from that. But basically, one of the side effects of that was that German enterprises still have a lot of stuff in their backyard that if you look into French arms industry or military, has been sold off to the Middle East or elsewhere. Germany is very restrictive. It, it sells little. And when it sells, it sells predominantly to other European allies. So you get tanks that are now former German tanks in Poland, in Spain, where, of course, Ukrainians have much more hope to, to get them back or to get them from them than if you 
sell the tents like Britain to Jordan or to Oman or the United Arab Emirates, where, where a lot of uh, French tanks went to. And that basically put Germany in a very different spot than any of the than either Great Britain or France in European arms supply debate, because, of course, other states wanted to support Ukraine and the stuff they had that could make a difference was German. So, Jeremy, maybe we can go to you next, because one of the reasons which came and went, which both Gustav and Jana were kind of arguing against, was this idea that Germany wouldn't go alone, that that was a kind of central idea of, of German policy. And but at the beginning, they said that NATO had decided not to, to give um, heavy military equipment to, to Ukraine. Right at the last minute, it seemed that there was some sort of linkage being made between Germany freeing its leopards and the US supplying its Abrams tanks. How are these things seen from Washington? Um yeah, that's a good question. I don't think I entirely know. It's a little bit confusing, frankly. The uh, The general view in Washington was that, in the first instance, tanks weren't the most important, as Gustav said, not the priority weapon system to be shipping to Ukraine. In the second instance, it made no sense to ship, uh, particularly made no sense to ship U.S. tanks. In the third instance, as Yana was saying, they believed that what was going on with the Leopards was more about symbolism and internal German debates than anything fundamental to uh, the Ukraine war. So they weren't really very keen to get very involved in it. And the conversations with the Germans were mostly along the lines of, if you want to send them, send them. If you don't want to send them, don't send them. So my assumption, although I don't really have any proof of it since since last week, basically, they were dead set against sending Abram tanks, is that they became concerned that there was an alliance issue here and that the credibility of the Germans and the, and the sort of ability and the, the unity of front was at risk uh, because of this sort of bizarre din that had occurred around this somewhat, and this issue, which isn't terribly meaningful for the war. And so they decided to make a somewhat, by their standards, symbolic commitment uh, and give the Germans a sense that they're behind them. To me, it is, if that's true, it's a sort of symbol of the way that the alliance has come to, to not really function without constant U.S. leadership. This should be an issue, since the U.S. wasn't even that interested in it, that Europeans should be able to decide themselves, Germans should be able to decide themselves, and you shouldn't need a U.S. wingman or an M1 Abrams tank to decide to send leopards. But that is not how it happened. Can I can I have a two finger on that? I know, Mark, you're a bit annoyed, but the, the problem from a German perspective was that basically Scholz in the end argued that if we send the leopards, this could lead to a terrible escalation that could may, kind of maybe lead um, to Russia using a tactical nuclear weapon or whatever against NATO and what the Germans or what, what Charles basically said by insisting that he needed uh, kind of the American Abrams in Ukraine as well was that he would not really trust the United States to come to kind of Europe's rescue or Germany's rescue if they would not participate with the tanks. So for him, it was kind of only in lockstep, kind of in total lockstep with the United States, with the same kind of weapons know, category. There's so many logical flaws in that argument that it's difficult to believe that even Olaf Schultz believes it. I mean, honestly, 
let's let's be clear here. First of all, there's all sorts of risks of escalation in in Russia and Ukraine, but the leopard tanks are not going to be much of an increment. Of I totally it. agree. Secondly, the U.S. is deeply committed to the Ukraine war, and by the way, has an Article Five commitment to Germany, which it seems quite credible to uphold at this point. And why going in with tanks would increase or decrease that in any way is a complete mystery to anyone. So that yeah, but I totally agree with you, Jeremy. But it's the it's really the belief of the whole strategic community in Germany, and I've heard it really there's from. No way that anybody no. that. There is no way that anyone believes it. it. You know, there's a certain level of ridiculousness that we just have to call out. Yeah, it makes no sense. I think to be fair, the German fear was is simply that if you arm Ukraine with heavy enough and offensive enough equipment, that it could end up trying to reclaim Crimea and doing things like that, which could lead to, to an escalation. Well, which could lead the, to the United States just standing by and looking at us and basically saying, this is none of our business. I mean, this is, this is the idea behind it, which I think is ridiculous. I don't think that, that that's a fair characterization of the debate within the SPD. I think people, particularly in the Chancellery, have been very worried about escalation and about sort of... No, we have to separate two things here, Mark. Obviously, people are worried about escalation. The tanks are, are an increment in that, but a very small one. The U.S. is worried about that. Everybody is worried about that. The question here is whether, is whether, the, um, whether adding U.S. tanks and adding going in together with tanks increases the U.S. commitment. And that's that's doesn't make any sense because the U.S. commitment is already incredibly firm. I'm pretty much with Jeremy on this one. The idea that uh, the delivery of uh, U.S. tanks was needed to be credible seems to me very far-fetched and that there would be some risk associated with going without the U.S. is indeed far-fetched, especially in an environment where others have already delivered tanks or have pledged to, de to deliver tanks. So uh, when uh, the chancellery was um, worried about going alone, in fact, it was going alone by not being willing to free the leopards in a way, because uh, Slovaks and the Poles have already delivered uh, tanks from very early days of the war. Uh, the UK just committed to deliver challengers. Uh, the French have been delivering or have agreed to deliver light tanks and are considering deliver, delivering Leclerc. So we are in an environment where The mood is for uh, heavier weapons to Ukraine, which leads to the debate about escalation, which is what sort of weapon is escalatory. And on that, I don't necessarily buy the argument that there are offensive weapons versus defensive weapons. Uh, what I would argue is that uh, there are different phases in the war. And what, what the, the phase we're in is a phase in which we know that the Ukrainians can be trained and are efficient in, in their own warfare and are also probably facing a, a Russian spring offensive. And if we want to enable them to resist to that, uh, tanks can help make a difference, even, even if they're not a game changer by themselves. So that's, I think, very helpful. And I think there is obviously a consensus amongst all of us about the fact that tanks were not a kind of red line in terms of the escalation. And I think also that this is a kind of peculiarly German psychodrama, but also because it seems particularly um, interesting that Germany has, has come under so much attack. I mean, France is a country that you know well, Kemi, is making a contribution to the war effort. 
but much smaller than the German one. And yet France has has evaded the sorts of criticisms which are thrown daily at the German government, in particular the, the Chancellor. How do you explain that? Is it just that people were happy that France was doing something at all, given its um, its close relationship with Russia, or are there other explanations? What I would say is that probably uh, Macron understood uh, um, about a month before Schultz that it was uh, time to sort of put your action where your mouth was, and that it was a bit inconsistent to say, I want a Ukrainian victory, and not being able to move your red lines uh, uh, when it came to weapons delivery. So that was the, the discussion about the, the, the delivery of uh, light tanks that came mid-January with the delivery of the AMX uh, 10RC, which are light tank on wheels, which was part of this broader conversation and unlocked the decision on the German murders and the uh, US Bradley participated in that broader conversation. And I guess the, the bottom line is, yes, indeed, we are being sometimes uh, both also as analysts a bit unfair to Germany, which has been uh, supporting Ukraine across the board uh, and including in the military domain. But the reality is that the German decision on the Leopard was very critical because it also unlocks the decision by a dozen of others, uh, some of them that had been sort of queuing and arguing for a decision for months, the Poles, uh, for um, a couple of weeks, the Finns. Uh, and there are you know, countries like Spain, Portugal, Netherlands, Denmark, uh, Sweden, that all operate Leopard tanks and that have been sort of waiting for a German green light on this. So this is what's making the German decision so important. In a way, neither the Brits nor the French, uh, should they deliver their own tanks, are in a position to align the hundred or couple of hundred that the Ukrainians are asking for in the coming months. So that's, uh, I think, quite a lot of good background on, on the actual decision. I think the two things which would be good to spend the rest of the time on, one you know, how much of a difference is this actually going to make in the battlefield? What kind of tactical advantage is it going to give to Ukraine? But also, what is the next psychodrama going to be? Gustav, maybe you can help us answer the first question. Well, on the first question, it really much depends on the numbers and the speed they're coming. Ukraine is, is as you said, hard-pressed to fend off a spring offensive that is expected to come with roughly 200,000 new Russian soldiers who are being trained and uh, increasingly shipped towards Ukraine. But I would say the logistical sustainability of this is much more of an advantage than kind of discussing these tanks as Wunderwaffen. We have ammunition under our control, we have spare parts under our control, and heavy, heavy brigades, uh, they're always involved in the biggest battles, both defensive and offensive. The counteroffensives, just as much as in defensive battles now in Bakhmut, and this allows the Ukraine to whatever, whatever, how long Russia wants to do this and how hard Russia wants to do this, Ukraine knows now that it will get its key military capabilities resupplied by the West. And that sends a strong signal to Moscow that a war of attrition will become increasingly difficult for them. And that also gives the Ukrainians a boost to say, look, there is an end at the light of the tunnel. We have support and we have lasting support. We, we, we can fight this war beyond the lifetime of our current systems. And I mean, one of the kind of rationales behind this decision is that um, the Allies have 
apparently decided that they want Ukraine to be able to take back more territory. That was a big question, but kind of the infantry fighting vehicles and the main battle tanks together are also, I think the decision to, to now send both of them are also seen as a symbol that the West is behind uh, the territorial claims um, that Ukraine has. Not all of them, maybe, but that there is still hope that they can get territory back. Kemi, you spent a long time over the last few years um, helping Europeans sort of think about their contribution to the defense of the North Atlantic area. And, and since the war in Ukraine, you had a very active role on uh, looking at all of these. Sorry, since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, you had a very active role in looking at these things. What do you think the next wave of, uh, of demands are going to be? What is the new leopard? No, I think, first of all, there will be a sort of follow-up to the leopards, associated with the leopards, which is, are these weapons coming in the right numbers and at the right pace? Because part of this discussion is to sort of uh, have a decision in principle. I noted that the German government said 14 leopards were available, which uh, seems a, a pretty small number and is bizarrely aligned with uh, the exact number that the Brits committed to uh, in terms of challenger to. So th there is a there is a, still a lot of politics around the numbers, around the pace of delivery, around the exact type of leopards that will be delivered. So there will be a conversation around that. Where will they be trained? Where will the logistics take place? Is it in, in Ukraine, in Poland, and all of that? So there, are, there is a sort of follow-up to the leopard conversation. The follow-up is a conversation uh, about how, first of all, about planes. Uh, are there jet fighters coming in? The Dutch have suggested that they were not ruling out giving their F-16. Uh, which would be a, a significant game changer. And there, essentially, the next conversation seems to be around weapon systems that could strike deeper into Russian territory and enable the, the Ukrainians to regain control of their airspace, which they never completely lost, but thanks to ground-to-air systems. So in a way, we're talking about uh, whether there would be planes shipped to Ukraine, whether it's old Soviet planes that are still in the some NATO inventory in Bulgaria, Romania, and else, Slovakia, and elsewhere, or whether there will be, uh, and, and there will be a sort, sort of last shipment of those, or whether there will be modern uh, Western planes. That is uh, demanding in terms of training. Those are costly weapons. Uh, it's not sure that they would be delivered in any numbers that would make a massive difference. Then there's a specific pressure on the U.S. that the Ukrainians have been asking for, which is the longer-range uh, rockets for the HIMARS, uh, so the so-called uh, Atakans, which would enable the Ukrainians to strike three kilometers beyond their, the lines, uh, which does mean an ability to strike into the Russian supply lines, including way into Russia. That is a, a sort of a red line for Washington that has not been uh, crossed in a U.S. perspective, probably uh, with the intent of not jumping to a weapon systems that would obviously be able to attack into Russian territory. The Ukrainians did attack into Russian territory on a couple of occasions, uh, including the Engels Air Force Base. Interestingly, they did use their own systems rather than U.S. systems, which might signal a, a fact that there is a bit of a deal that when you do attack into Russia, you don't use Western systems, at least for the moment. My bottom line, and in sum, I guess the, the big issue will be how will the Russia react to the success or failure of, uh, of the next phase of the war? 
is there an escalation in the air domain that would uh, make the pressure for planes and, and more ground-to-air systems the, the key? Or will the land offensive be so successful that uh, uh, being able to strike logistical nodes behind enemy lines will become critical to weaken the Russian offensive? Those are some of conversations that will pop up. But it's, uh, d- this is essentially the domains where the conversation is taking place at the moment. Okay, Jeremy. Um, Jeremy talked a lot about America and the kind of red lines in America and the pressure that's going to be put back on the US now that the Germans have, have capitulated on the leopards. Um, how do you see things emerging? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I mostly agree with Camille. The, Yana said that this is a symbol that the, that the allies, including the U.S., support uh, Ukraine gaining back territory. I'm not exactly sure that's true. I think it's more of a symbol that the campaign of uh, Ukrainians and their allies in the West to use the to, to create pressure in domestic politics in both Europe and and in the U.S. to get greater weapon systems is a very effective one, and that that campaign will continue, and that uh, next on the Ukrainians' list, as Kami said, is longer-range ammunition inside the, uh, the uh, that would fit in the HIMARS tubes. That that's something that they're talking a lot to the U.S. about. It's not just attackums, by the way. There are sort of a there's an array of options at various levels of distance, and so there's probably one or two more steps before attackums. But I guess my prediction would be that the, the U.S. doesn't think that those are a good idea for some of the reasons that Kami said right now. But but the pressure will mount, particularly if there are, interestingly, either opportunities or reverses on the battlefield. That pressure will become uh, unsustainable. And so those weapons will incrementally flow. I think I also agree with Kami, and I think Gustav said something similar, which is that the escalation dynamic, which is very serious and which has a lot of risks, doesn't come from the provision of specific weapons. It comes from the results on the battlefield, which is related to the weapons, but not directly. Uh, And so uh, the escalation risk will not come because weapon systems are provided. It will not become even because U.S. or Western weapons are used to attack in Russia. It will come because those things have an effect on the battlefield, which means that uh, the Russians feel like they're losing and need to escalate. Maybe just a footnote from Germany, because I think it will become increasingly difficult for a German government to sell further steps to the broader German public. Um, we've seen this already with uh, public opinion numbers shifting. Um, now Germany is split in half. And there are a lot of people um, who argue this is kind of uh, the, the road to escalation. We are sleepwalking into it. Next are planes and then ships and then boots on the ground. And so there is also some sort of fierce resistance mounting in the German public. And I think that's true for for Europe, at least Western Europe more broadly. It's also proved to be a very successful uh, political rallying uh, point, both within the, uh, the German system, where the FDP and the Green Party have used uh, this conflict over leopards to burnish their foreign policy credentials and their credentials as proponents of a sort of values-based German foreign policy. But also, um, you know, it's obviously been very helpful to Poland and other countries that have been trying to marginalize Germany and pursue their own claims to European leadership. 
I think that's all we've got time for this week, but we have one thing left to do on the podcast, which is the bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf, Jana? So I was in Spain to visit our Spanish colleague, Nacho, and a summer school he organized, and I met Catherine Belton. Um, she is the author of the book Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. And uh, I just bought it. I haven't read it, but um, I had very nice conversations with her when I met her, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Great. What about you, Gustav? As promised, uh, it's not a book, uh, I have to say. But I think it's an essential reading for the topic we're talking about, and that is Sabine Fischer Peace, Peace Talks Between Russia and Ukraine, Mission Impossible. It's a short read, and it's a must read, to my point of view. It's about peace negotiations and why they have failed and why there is little chance in getting them along. It's from November, but it's basically still accurate. Okay, what about you, Kemi? Well, I, I just uh, received from the author, uh, Thomas Goma, who's the director of IFRI, his new book, which is called about... Uh, Les Ambitions Inavouées, so New Ambitions from the Great Powers, which is looking at the way um, the global system is restructuring itself, not only through the Ukrainian war, but more broadly through uh, the dynamics on energy and a number of other points. Uh, looks very promising, in, only in French at the moment, Les Ambitions Inavouées. Okay, what about you, Jeremy? I think you all need more hobbies, frankly. I would say <laughs> that, uh, that that Catherine Belton book, which I have read, is really quite spectacular. I've been reading a, a series of books by Philip Kerr, which is a which is a det detective novels uh, that take place in um, both pre-war and post-war Germany, and involve the struggles of this sort of Christopher Philip Marlowe type detective to deal with um, Nazis and post-war occupation. Uh, it's called the Bernie Gunther series, and the first one. Um, I'm already four, four novels into it, but the first one is called March of Violence. Great. Well, we'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned at our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, we would urge you to subscribe to it on whatever platform you've used to download this particular episode on. While you're there, it'd be great if you could give us a positive rating and a, a five-star review. Um, or maybe it's the other way around. Anyway, whatever it is, it will bring people to the podcast and help spread the word about the world in 30 minutes. But for now, from Jana Pulierin, Gustav Gressel, Camille Grand, Jeremy Shapiro, and myself, Mark Leonard, it is goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar, and the editor of this episode is Marlene Riedel. <laughs>